Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspiring show coming right up with two very special guests. Our first guest today is Susie Rowe, and she's here to share with us her new book, My Wild and Precious Life, a memoir. Now, Susie is a psychologist with a specialization in organizational development and leadership effectiveness. For the past 30 years, she has worked with senior executives across the private and public sectors globally. Since 2007, Susie has been a special advisor for the Clinton Foundation Health Access Initiative. Supporting field offices across the globe, she trains local staff to accelerate HIV testing and treatment uptakes using grassroots team-based approach. So let's welcome to the show, Susie Rowe. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You know, what an honor it is to have you here. My goodness, what an inspiration you are. And I picked up your book. I couldn't put it down. I just love this book. (laughs) That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. Oh, well, I'm sure you're getting that from a lot of people. And it really has, you know, it it really kind of makes somebody like I, I read it and I was just kind of paused and was kind of reflecting on my own life. It's like, how can we make profound changes? You know, it kind of in the way that you and your husband did. Well, it was gradual. It didn't happen overnight for sure. Well, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about just your work experience? You know, I've known that you've been doing this kind of work for 30 years. Well, I'm trained as a psychologist, and for a long time, I had more traditional jobs in the U.S., Um, and when my son was 16, I wanted to take him on an adventure where he and I would be asked to make a contribution as opposed to just being a tourist. And he got a lot of input about where we would go. And he chose this volunteer association in Zimbabwe that was helping to raise lions that would get them ready to go back out into the wild. So it was a pretty wild adventure for starters. I thought they would be cute little cubs like in the brochure, they were actually two and 300 pound adolescent lions, um, just as rambunctious, uh, rambunctious as adolescent kids. Um, so I fell in love with Africa at that point. So that was in oh, 506. Um, and having had that experience, I wanted to go back to Africa, but I, I didn't want to go to go and um, scoop lion poop anymore. (laughs) I had that experience with my son. And I wanted to see if there would be a place in Africa that could use my skills as a psychologist. So I met with Ed Wood, who was then the CEO of the Clinton Foundation Health Access Initiative. And they were working in 75 countries to stem the tide of the AIDS epidemic. And we had lunch and he said, how soon can you leave for Ethiopia? <laughs> and I said, well, I think I need a few shots before I can't go next week. <laughs> and he lured me <clears throat> to the work in Ethiopia. And then there were years of work on top of that in various sub-Saharan African countries. Um, Ethiopia, Malawi, Tanzania, 
um, what am I forgetting, Lesotho, Swaziland. There was a lot of work that I did that was similar from one country to the next. I would train teams of folks to run sessions at the very grassroots level in their villages. So instead of having white people come and say, this is what you have to do to to get people tested and in treatment, we would get the opinion leaders at the very basic level in the villages to meet and come up with their own ideas, which were far more creative than what we could have done or ever pulled off. And so we were able to get some pretty fabulous results in one country, which would then precipitate another country saying, okay, let's do this also. So before I knew it, I was, um, I was going back and forth to multiple countries, trying to remember how to say thank you and hello in five different African languages. And um, after a bit, I really started to miss my husband, who was just a peach, but he wasn't going with me. He was listening patiently when I would come home kind of exhausted. And um, so I began to fantasize, well, what if Gil and I could find a project together in Africa? Maybe let's see if I can get him to fall in love with Africa. Well, that was easy. Took about half a day. (laughs) (laughs) Either you get it or you don't. It's kind of a, it's kind of like a bug. Um, And then I was, So I took him on safari. We got to see the migration. He understood fundamentally why this pull to the continent. And then a series of almost spooky coincidences happened to us. We were the first day off of a safari staying in a lodge in Tanzania. And the lodge had did something they called a cultural walking tour. Well, I, I usually don't like to go on those because I like to make my own way. But we knew that if we went on our own, we might not find our way back because the village was just a warren of footpaths. Um, so that day, we were with our guide named Joel, and he pointed to this really ugly concrete building. Um, And he said, that's a new orphanage for AIDS orphans. And we said, what? Are you kidding? It looked so bleak, so grim, not a blade of grass, just this really hideous gray building in the middle of a yard with just dust, no, no nothing. So we asked if we could go in to the, to the orphanage and see it. And so Joel got us an invitation to come in. We walked in. There were nine kids jumping up and down, laughing, smiling. But there was nine kids, two beds, no food, no toys, no clothes, no books, no bedding, no nothing. And so Gil and I looked at each other and we said, do you think we have to look a lot further for a project that needs some help? The answer was, you know, absolutely not. And and then we began to talk as we walked back to the lodge saying, well, why not help this spot? How, how, how can we find out more about it? And that night talk about another sort of serendipitous 
um, happening is that we met two Chicago, a couple from Chicago, who were also running a small NGO in the area. And they said, if you want to help this little orphanage and we can help you get it started, then we will take you under our umbrella as an NGO. And that will enable you, Susie and Gil, to to raise money in the U.S. You really need to be a 5013C. So that it all started in that snowball of events in 2011. And we, if I fast forward to today, we have 350 kids, a brand new school, a brand new home, a huge farm, a dining hall and community center, and a staff of teachers that are just fabulous. So we pinch ourselves that it has happened this quickly. And in fact, Gil and I spend about four months a year on the ground in Africa, and we'll be back there the night of October 3rd. Oh, my goodness. It's just such a beautiful story. I'm so glad you shared that with us because it's interesting when people open their hearts and go, you know what, I want to make a profound difference. Mm -hmm. How can I do that? And then you see the doors open. That's right. Um, I think that doors don't open for us unless we have a dream, unless we have a vision of what might be possible. Because if we didn't have that, we would have just walked past that building. We wouldn't, we were tired, we were hot and sweaty. We would have just said, oh, too bad, that looks grim. But we had this driving sense that there would be a project that would pull at us and that would make sense. My husband used to be long ago a elementary school principal, so he knew, he knew about schools. And I knew about kids as a psychologist. So, um, but we had spent, people say, well, how, did, how could that happen that fast? Well, it had taken years really to incubate the idea while I was traipsing all over the rest of Africa. Um, it took a while. Well, I'm so glad that you shared that with us. And for our listeners that maybe have never been to Tanzania, what is it like there? Just, you know, daily life. What is that like? Sure. Well, in rural Tanzania, which is where we are, equidistant between Arusha and Kilimanjaro, we live up on the, in the foothills of Mount Meru. And there we have tribes and generations of people who have lived there for hundreds of years. So most of the people in the village in the villages that surround us and that send kids to our school have been there a very, very long time. And that's good news, bad news. Um, the, the norm for most families in the area is subsistence farming. And that is very tough where we're now feeling the impact of drought from climate change. Um, but Life there is very basic. People live in one or two room houses. They're snazzier than they are in other places in Africa because they can make and bake their own bricks from the dirt in their backyards. But people have no running water, no electricity, no indoor plumbing. Um, Their lives are 
are generations of extreme poverty. So the kids that we are taking on are kids that might not ever have seen the inside of a school because their parents were too poor to pay school fees. So um, life there is really hard. Um, and at first we sent our kids to public school because we didn't have much money. We were just making sure that they had food and we paid the school fees so they could go to public school. But public school in Tanzania is dramatically underfunded. So a classroom in Tanzania might have 80 to 100 kids and one teacher. One teacher and no teaching aids, no nothing, nothing but a blackboard and a piece of chalk. And so everything is memorized and done in a sing-song kind of a way. Um, and corporal punishment is quite often used. So one of the cutest kids in the orphanage was one of my special favorites, but he was very hyperactive. I knew if he was in the U.S., he'd be, be on Ritalin in a heartbeat. He was just, he couldn't sit still. And he, they beat him. And so we just said, we can't, we can't let this go on. We've got to raise money to take the kids to a better school. And we did, and they did. And then we began to find that most of the schools, even though they were private schools and the classes were slightly smaller, they were still pretty crummy. And very often, these were schools that were built and made for profit. So if the owners started doing poorly in their farming business, they would stop paying the teachers and the teachers would stop teaching. And our kids would come home and said, we did nothing today. We have no homework. The teachers were doing all of what they could was just to try and push at the system. So eventually we were, of course, very, very deeply connected. I must start by saying we were um, stitched at the hip with the two Tanzanian partners we had, Sarah and William Modest, who was a fabulous last name and very apt, but they were also very strong and very good leaders. So we planned together how to go after each new growth spurt. Um, and then we, of course, needed to do a lot of fundraising in the U.S. and elsewhere to make it happen. Um, so uh, I forgot where I started here. But, That's you know, okay. Well, we're in the middle. <laughs> no worries. Well, Gina, and I'm looking at the website, Precious Project, and just .org, and looking at everything that is available. And my goodness, it, you, you have a full curriculum here. We do. And in Tanzania, you may not progress through your educational years without passing two sets of exams, one in the fourth grade and one in the seventh grade. If you don't, do not pass in the seventh grade, you may not go to high school. It's just that grim. And, oh, by the way, if you are pregnant in secondary school, you can be subject at any point to a random pregnancy test. If you test positive, you will be expelled from school that day and you may never return. 
So we have been really upping the ante on sex education as well as education about, because families in this part of the world, the mothers do not talk to the daughters at all about anything about how their bodies work and how babies come to be and what menstruation is. So we're trying to deal with that for with our older kids and set them up so that they understand that the creepy guy down the street who is offering them candies every day may not be such a good idea to hang out with. And there's lots of sexual abuse between teachers and students, much as we've seen between in the Catholic Church in the U.S. So we've learned a lot of things being there that I didn't learn, that I didn't know working in the AIDS space. And these are hard things. They're heartbreaking things, really. Um, we have learned of <clears throat> child abuse in the homes of the kids that are our day student, day students that is sometimes just shocking. So we've had to rescue a few kids. We had one child whose father <clears throat> did not want to see him as his son. He said, he's not my son. He's not my son. And so this father tried three times to poison the child. Oh, wow. Rat poison. So when we learned about this, we got together with the village elders and the social welfare unit, and we were given custody of the child. Um, but these kinds of things we have I guess as we get a little more dug in year over year, we learn more. And some of it's enough to just make you put your head down and cry. So we, we feel like we're doing a good job with our small slice of kids. Um, but it is small compared to the whole country and, and the needs that exist there. But I tell those stories in my book because I think it's important that people move away from their stereotypes of Africa. And most people, when they come back from a trip to Africa, if you ask them, so what did you do in your time in the Africa? And they'll say, well, we went on safari. Well, when you're on safari, you're treated like you're living in a five-star hotel. You have running water in your capacious tent, which probably has hardwood floors and a flush toilet. And it's twice, three times as big as the African's house, who may be the guides on the safaris. So you may have seen some of the most spectacular wildlife you'll ever see in your life. You, you feel like you're on a Walt Disney special, but you have not learned about Africa. You've learned about how Africans make some money, although it does not trickle down the way you would think. Um, and so uh, that's why I, I, there's some tough to read stories in my book because that's the reality. Um, yeah. So, and I think that it's good that people hear these stories because you're right. When people do go on safari, they're not really looking beyond. It's like being in an all-inclusive resort. They don't really get yeah, to see what's exactly. going on outside. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. They have to really choose to look. You really do. And the safari companies 
Our first safari company told our guide, who's since become a dear friend of ours, he and his family, never tell your guests about the way you live. Do not tell them how to send you money. Do not tell them things that will make them feel sorry for you. So um, we ended up sleuthing out what the situation was with this particular guide and his six kids. Um, but white tourists are very pampered in Africa. It's quite amazing. So when you talk, you have 300 children that are in the orphanage. So how did they in the school? Actually, I wasn't, I didn't make that clear. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. 21 in the orphanage Mm -hmm. and 350 in the school. And 350 in the school. How do you determine which children get placed with you both in school and in the orphanage? Mm -hmm. Great question. So for school admittance, there has to be a combination of demonstrable need. And we make home visits, not us, but the Tanzanians make home visits to see the situation and also a degree of academic promise. Since we're taking 300 kids out of what could be hundreds more, we want to make sure that we're giving the kids the break that need it the most and that um, it would just be tragic not to give them an education. And so we give kids a kind of an entry exam and then um, we check out their family situation. Now, some families send their kids and pay full tuition, but full tuition doesn't come close to paying for what it actually costs to educate these kids. So, um, so that's what we do it for the school entrance. And um, it's hard. There's some kids you really want to say yes to, but you can't because um, they really couldn't keep up. And um, for the home, we look for kids who can also go to school and succeed at school, um, but who also have a family situation that's probably untenable. We have kids living with grandparents who are so old and frail that no meals are cooked there. We know that some kids leave our school on Friday afternoon and don't get fed until they come back on Monday morning. So we start very early on Monday morning with feeding. Um, It's just tough that kids arrive on Monday just looking so wan and peaked. So those those are some of the things that we run into. Is that one of the things that kind of keep you up at night just because it sounds like while you know you're making it impact, there's just it, it could seem like it would be insurmountable at times. Yes, you, we really have to wrestle our <clears throat> emotions into a positive place, and the Tanzanians do that with us and for us. That we celebrate the kids that we have helped. We know we've saved quite a number of lives. We know we've turned the corner for some kids for whom there would have been no corner to turn. So we stay on that side of the ledger. Um, We grow a bit too fast, unfortunately, but, but these kids steal your heart. And then you say, I can't 
put that kid back in public school or actually not even in school. A lot of the kids that don't go to public school just fetch water and firewood and sweep their yards and and uh, don't have much to show for it. <clears throat> so how is it like just from a risk factor for you living in Africa when you're there? Well, that's a great question. My husband, we've been there quite a while. I've never had actually seen a tarantula until last fall when my husband discovered one in our bedroom. Oh, wow. It was six inches long. (laughs) He dispatched it before I, he took a picture of it and then dispatched it before I had a chance to see it. So spiders was actually the last thing I worry about. It's mostly things like malaria and um, dysentery. Um, that are the most obvious risks for us. Um, We are well inoculated against typhoid and tetanus and things like that. But malaria is, we're not in a highly difficult zone, not a lot of standing water. Um, But we, we used to take malarone and now we don't. We, it's just too long to take it. It's a very powerful drug. So we do what other expats do, which is we get very friendly with DEET and we don't stand outside a lot at dusk when the female mosquitoes that are the malarial mosquitoes come out. Um, <clears throat> the other things you worry about, and we doctor our food and water phenomenally. I mean, we boil our dishes. We filter the water. We boil and then filter and boil and filter. And then if we have vegetables with the skin still on it, like a tomato, we'll um, soak it in bleach before you eat it. So it, it sounds awful, but it's if you do it just briefly, you can get away with it and it doesn't taste like bleach. But you have to be very bullet, very careful. And one of the things I have to really be careful about is we have running water in our little house. But if I put my toothbrush under that running water, that's trouble. So much for that toothbrush. You have to remember that because coming back and forth from the States, exactly. back to Africa, that would be an easy thing to forget. Totally. I've done it more than once. I must say, I I have to just very concentrate. The other thing is that we have water. We have hot water, but the hot water is comes not from a water heater, but it comes from a a a firebox that is external to the house. So our night guard, you have to have a night guard when you're there. So uh, tends to the fire, but sometimes the fire gets uh, going too hot. And we at once had an explosion, which I'm glad didn't explode the house. It just exploded the firebox. But if you turn the water on and it's too hot, you'll see brown water coming from the rust in the pipes and also steam because the water's boiling. So you have to be careful about that as well. Yeah. There's a lot to consider there that most people never even realize. And that's just water. I mean, then you get into, you know, you know, just living there, you know, having this, um, this foundation that you guys are working with, 
your nonprofit and, and being able to run that as effectively as you have. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there. Right. We have marvelous staff and um, William and Sarah are wonderful managers and role models for them. And we actually pay them, which makes a big difference in their ongoing loyalty to us. These are folks who could never get a bank account. We open a bank account for them and their salary is deposited into the bank account. So we're not dealing with all the money up at the school. Um, And they're remarkable. They're very dedicated. They love the kids. Um, When we screen for teachers, we make it clear to them that if there is a whiff of corporal punishment, um, then they will be fired that day. And we had to do that in one instance with a young teacher. This is how she had been taught, no doubt, is that she was severely pinching the inside of the thigh of the girls who were misbehaving. So it's not an obvious bruise. It's quite hidden. And, but quite painful in that part of the body. We found this out and she was fired that day. And it's just jungle, jungle drums get it from there, you know, mm-hmm. being business. Oh, yeah. And, and you guys take that seriously. Right. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because you, you talked about the child earlier, you know, probably if he's here in the States, it would be on Ritalin. You, you kind of look at these things and there's so many other things going on that they may not be equipped to really identify or deal with. So taking corporal punishment out of the equation kind of solves some of those issues that the children are experiencing. But, but what it does, you, yes, but it, it does help the fear and terror of the kids um, with the corporal punishment, but it leaves the teachers without any other strategy. So that's why we've invested in teacher training because if you don't, if you can't threaten punishment, many of the teachers really don't have an idea of what to do. So we have to give them some other options. Just kind of giving everyone training all the way around. When a child is, um, they go through the school system, let's say, you know, with, with the school that you have, are they then able to go ahead and Um, see about qualifying for college and moving forward? Well, we only go through seventh grade. So if the, the, so then the kids take the big exam and our kids are prepped and prepped and prepped. So most of our kids, all of our kids have passed, which gives them the ticket to go to secondary school. We don't have a secondary school, however. So we vet closely the secondary schools that are around and we choose ones to fund or we fund one child at a time uh, to go to those secondary schools and we keep very close tabs on what's happening there. Someday we fervently hope to build a secondary school. We have the land. We're farming it now. We hope to be able to raise enough money to build a secondary school because we know what a quality education looks like. That sounds very arrogant. Um, but we know what that quality needs to look like. And we have some kids that should come to the U.S. to be trained. They're 
they're really gifted, truly gifted. We have one young girl. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you her story briefly. She was Maasai. The Maasai are pastoralists and polygamists. And she was found wandering in Maasai land with no parental oversight. She was just on the verge of having to have had female circumcision, which is female genital mutilation. She would have been sold into a marriage for cows. She would have been one of 10, 12, or 13 wives. And now she's been with us for a long time now. And she says, at first she said she wanted to be a prime minister. Now she says she wants to be a cardiologist. And you know, she's smart enough to do it if we can make the way. I wouldn't be surprised if she does both, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I want to congratulate you because I know you have one of the announcements on your website that the students took a mock national exam and they ate. And so, you know, you guys do know what you're doing. So you can't, you know, can't make that up. (laughs) Right. Right. And we do crow about our, our uh, successes and the kids feel so celebrated. Well, if someone's looking not only to learn more about your book, but you know, about precious project and maybe how they can donate or get involved, where would they go? The best place is right where you are on the website, preciousprojectalloneword.com. That would give them a sense of what we're up to. They can also write to us and say they'd like to be included on our newsletter, which is short and sweet, but fun. Um, And those methods, I mean, getting on the website is very easy to donate or get involved. We do not um, have housing for or a program for a lot of volunteers. Many people ask us. Um, It's a complex business to get into volunteering, especially when you're volunteering with kids who've been abandoned um, and neglected. So we're not keen to introduce volunteers who will fall in love with the kids and vice versa and then disappear. It just replicates the trauma for them. Yeah, that's going to be very difficult. But, you know, they can probably do a community fundraiser for a precious project. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have had uh, volunteers do that. We've had some kids in classrooms do bake sales, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're happy to have that support in any way that it comes to us. Well, Susie, thank you, both you and your husband and everyone at The Precious Project, for all that you're doing. I just loved your book and highly suggest everyone go out and pick their copy up. You know, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your story. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Susie. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you to talk about your new book, My Wild and Precious Life and PreciousProject.org. We are going to pause here for a quick break. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. We'll be right back after these messages. Internationally recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. 
Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. There comes a moment when you realize you're somewhere special, when you discover that each beautiful creature that you see has been rescued from a life of absolute horror and brought to this incredibly free place. Here's where their lives were forever changed and where yours will as well. Discover over 500 tigers, bears, and lions at the brand new visitor center at the Wild Animal Sanctuary just outside Denver. For more information, visit wildanimalsanctuary.org. Discover true freedom at the Wild Animal Sanctuary. There are nearly 2 million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life, one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation, healing limbs, hearts, and souls. If not me, then who? This ethos is driving the Travis Manion Foundation to empower veterans and families of fallen heroes to develop character in future generations. In 2007, Marine First Lieutenant Travis Manion was killed in Iraq while saving his wounded teammates. Travis's legacy lives on in the five words he spoke before leaving for his final deployment. If not me, then who? Guided by this mantra, veterans continue their service, developing strong relationships in the community and thrive in their post-military lives. Visit TravisManion.org and ensure the character of our nation's heroes lives on in the next generation. If not me, then who? Back to Moments with Marianne. We're here with our next special guest, Chef Elena Reagan, and she's here today to share with us her new book, Burn the Place, a memoir. Now, Chef Elena has been described by many as the queen of Midwestern cuisine. She opened her first restaurant in 2012, had earned a Michelin star by 2013, and by 2016, she'd been named one of Food and Wine's best new chefs. So let's welcome to the show, Chef Elena Reagan. Yeah, thanks for having me. What a joy it is to have you, and my goodness, man, you start the book off with a bang. I mean, I could, <laughs> once I read that, I could not put the book down. Oh, thank you. And so for our listeners, I mean, it's such a great start for a book. It just captures you and brings you into the book. And so, you know, Elena, I want to ask, like, what inspired you at this point in your journey to start writing your memoir? Um, well, I honestly, I, my, my background is in writing. So um, I've always just been, everything kind of inspires me to write, but my, um, publisher actually approached me um, in 2015 and asked me to write a memoir. So I started slowly but surely working on it back then um, and took a little bit of time off here and there because of different um, 
circumstances like opening a restaurant or closing a restaurant or whatever it it was going on in my life, some of those things that just made it almost nearly impossible to get any writing done. But um, so it took a good three years, I think, before I had it fully turned in. But um, yeah, he he had seen a uh, or read an article about me that was kind of detailed in one of the local papers and thought, wow, what what an interesting story. And also, she has a writing background. So um, I think that this would work out. And so when he asked me, yeah, I was excited about it. I can imagine. And you do have a very interesting story. I mean, don't we all, but yours really stands out. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners what it was like growing up. Um what it was like growing up. I mean, I really cherished the childhood that I had. It was, I, I think I, in, in the book, recount it quite a bit as being um, just really magical. The farm that I grew up on was um, 10 acres of gardens and animals and, you know, barns and plenty of things to just constantly be roaming and discovering, but, um, it was also rule and I was also struggling with, um, gender identity and, um, there, there was a lot of things that were, you know, complicated as well. Um, just like you said, like our lives can be interesting and complicated. And so, um, but I, I had a, a loving family and three sisters that were much, much older. So it was like I had almost three moms, the, you know, aside from my real mom. And so I, I don't know, it was a, it was a good, magical, fun childhood. I love how your book just really kind of describes this real deep connection you had with the farm. And I can kind of see where that may have started your connection with food as well? Oh, for sure. Everything was fresh all the time. I mean, um, our, we had a pantry and I can just remember looking into it and just the mason jars stacked on top of each other of peaches and peppers and pickles and uh, tomatoes. Just, you know, it was just like this big kind of deeply multicolored universe right right in, inside of that but the house was constantly filled with those aromas of something being cooked and you know always from scratch that was the thing that was really the beauty of it is just being able to have a tomato that's ripe and warm from the garden and slicing into it or you know picking a watermelon that is just like right there you you wipe off the dirt and slice into it or zucchini was the big thing my mom would slice fresh zucchini and flour that and fr- shallow fry it and butter and you know before it ever hit the refrigerator so there's a there's definitely a quality that the food you know has when it's had you know when it has that peak freshness so um, yeah, I fell in love with food at quite an early age. What are some of your first memories with cooking and dealing with food? Well, 
not only the the garden on the farm, but we also used to do a lot of foraging as well. So um, my father's um, Eastern European, and he's still pretty close to some of that um, heritage or cu- customs that were um, came here from um, Poland and Lithuania and, and some of the countries of uh, mushroom hunting. So in Gary, Indiana, a long time ago, well, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, um, when every, you know, the the steel mills were very popular um, for jobs. And so a lot of Eastern Europeans were in the area and being that close to Lake Michigan, there was lots of oak trees and um, black oak and white oak in a sandy loamy soil. And so um, they were all out foraging a lot and the the area was very fruitful for that, for different types of mushrooms. And so my dad did that as, as well. And he learned a lot from some of the elders in his family. And so then we did that and, you know, foraging at an early age being two, three, four, five, um, really picked my curiosity into, well, like, what else could we be eating that's out here, you know, in nature? So um, my earliest memory, though, of that is having chanterelles that we had picked from my grandfather's farm and sauteing those over the stove. And just the aroma of of that was really um, kind of breathtaking. And maybe I don't appreciate it as much as a child, but then as I became an adult, um, I could, that smell memory really would always take me back to those moments. And so that was really just kind of an interesting thing to be able to tap into a memory through aroma. So, um, yeah, chanterelles are are a big one. I also love Hen of the Woods mushrooms. Uh, Those are the ones that we find in the fall. So actually going on a foraging trip soon. I know there are a lot of listeners that do forage for mushrooms and others that, you know, are interested in that. And I think it's such a, um, just a unique experience being able to be out in nature and, and find food in such a organic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to, um, that's a, just the way I like to spend my time is, um, when I have free time is foraging and, and finding different things that I could be cooking to eat um, that are are different that, you know, we don't see every day. And so the Midwest is really plentiful with a lot of that. And um, I actually have a cabin that I just bought in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that I've turned into a bed and breakfast or an inn. It's called Milkweed Inn. And um we have 150 acres, so a large part of that is based around foraging because just my yard itself is filled with raspberries and blueberries and blackberries and, I mean, just you name it, it's there, gooseberries, everything. Wow. Well, you can know that I will be booking soon to come and see you. That sounds way too delightful, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably, you know, those are kind of fun getaways where you could be so connected with nature. 
you know, in the way that you grew up and not everyone has those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. It's really incredible. I think that that was something that I was thinking about, um, writing this book and, um, burn the place means, I mean, so much more than just the, you know, beginning where, uh, we have that prologue of, you know, that, that wildness of like really literally burning down the restaurant, but also just really figuring out my life still and where am I going from here? And I think, um, there's always kind of like this for myself, at least a rebirth and starting over. And I think I'm in one of those transitions now. And so, um, a lot of the in the idea behind that, at least for me was like, just wanted to do something that felt even a little bit more like home than my own home, if that makes sense, and really build my career into something that makes sense for my lifestyle and calm things down a little bit. Well, we're going to come back to the restaurant part because that is, again, how you started the book and such a great way to kind of dive into your memoir. But I'd love for you to share with us before we do just the influence your father had on you growing up. Yeah, he, um, I mean, he, honestly, he he wasn't around that much, but when he was around, he was always in the garden and um, I was always tagging along with him or uh, a story that he likes to tell. And I don't remember this one so much, but whenever he was going hunting with any of his friends was that um, my mom had to hide me so she couldn't see what he was doing or um, I, I couldn't see him getting ready because I guess like I just wanted to go so badly with him whenever he was going to the woods. Um, and some of the those kind of trips, of course, they don't want to take, uh, you know, a child on Um but, um, I, yeah, I always wanted to do what he was doing and, um, but he did, he worked a lot. He worked at the steel mill. So a lot of overtime and things like that. And, um, and he worked with the Teamsters for a while. So again, he was, he was doing a, um, a lot of stuff to support us, but also at the same time, um, I think I definitely inherited that love for, um, tinkering in nature and having to be doing something. And so that's what his was. His was a garden and um, butchering animals and preserving them and saving seeds. And I definitely got some of that, maybe um, tending the garden, not so much the animal part as much as um, foraging. Um, But yeah, definitely picked up that work ethic. So when did you decide to open your first restaurant? Um, I decided that actually uh, uh, sometime before I did open the restaurant. I think it was 2007 or 8, I made the decision that, you know, this is what I was going to do. I was going to open a restaurant because it was something I had wanted to do for a long time. And um, in 2008, I began working towards that goal. Um, by um, starting a garden and growing things and taking that produce and turning it into preserves and different creations that I would take to farmer's markets. So this started in 
Yeah, the summer of 2008. By 2010, I opened a little underground restaurant in my house. And then by 2012, I opened Elizabeth. So Elizabeth, that's the one that actually is very well known. And Mm -hmm. and I, I would love for you to share with our listeners just, you know, the journey that you had with that restaurant. Yeah, we opened in 2012 and I got to that place a little bit um, unconventionally. There's a lot of paths that chefs can follow, um, but I would say the most frequent one is where, you know, you would work for, work up a succession of a line of chefs and earn some uh, name recognition that way and then enter into the field. But rather than that, um, I took you know, my creativity and the knowledge I had of cooking being around it my whole whole life and applied it in a different way and, and built the, the name recognition by, um, like I said, the farmer's markets and my underground restaurant in my house. And, and that's how I was able to get a couple small investors. And our, Elizabeth was, is very tiny. There's 20 seats. It's in a uh, storefront that's kind of connected to a few other businesses, so a a strip mall. But the whole goal of that was to make it feel really um, comfortable, like people were in my house, because that's uh, how my, essentially it was right before then, you know, people were coming to my house. So it's very intimate. Um, And it, was a, a lot of fun. It was exactly what I wanted to do. And um, after our first year, we got um, a Michelin star, you know, locally, a lot of um, nice accolades. Um, and and it's just been going well ever since. I mean, there's obviously when you read the book, you, you see, you know, I, I'm very honest about a, a lot of the struggle. Um, and, you know, mostly when, um, uh, I'm, you know, it's a small, it's a small business. So like any small business owner, it's a 24 hour a day, seven day a week job. And, um, so the management part is, is very hard, you know, managing people. I, I often tell people, I don't think that there's anything that I could have, you know, nothing that could have prepared me for that type of thing, no type of schooling or, you know, maybe some um, previous jobs where I have had management. But the, the thing is, when, it, when it's your own place and, you know, you're managing people, it can be a really uh, daunting task. So um, I think that that, you know, um, big part of that struggle I, I described in the book as well. But um but that 24 hour a day thing, like I'm saying, and the stress and even those great things like Michelin and James Beard um, awards and all of those can be, um, there's a lot of pressure associated as well. And sometimes you're in this industry because you just, you want to cook and you want to cook for people and there's the beauty of it and the creativity. And when you add all the pressure and some of those things, it it can be a lot. And so um, 
I am just getting to that point in my life where I'm like, okay, what, what's next? This has been seven years and, um, I want to keep cooking in every capacity, but do I want to keep having a restaurant five years from now or how do I want my life to look? And so I, I think I'm at that crossroads where I'm, you know, 40 years old and, and trying to figure out what, what does the next five years look like or 10 years look like? And I think that that's something else that comes up frequently in my book is really just looking at myself and, in, in awareness and, you know, like, okay, what, what is the next right thing or the best thing, you know, that makes sense for mental health and just, you know, every kind of stability physically, mentally, spiritually. Oh, I think everyone goes through that where they get these periods of time where they kind of reassess where their life is and, you know, where their joy level is. It's like, hey, does this bring mm-hmm. me happiness? And do I want to switch paths or am I happy with where I'm at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I, that was uh, started to happen a couple of years ago. I was just thinking, you know, is... Yeah, I I was feeling a little bit down and depressed and overworked and and burnt out and really assessing what and uh, writing the book actually was just so cathartic in and of itself. I think that it was, you know, brought gave me the ability to be able to see like exactly um, some of these things. But thinking about like um, just okay, what what parts of this do I absolutely love and what parts of this do can I not see myself doing, you know, in the next 10 years. And, um, so, and then I'm the type of person, I think that's something else that, you know, is people will, will like about the book is that when I make a decision that I want to do something, I, I end up doing it. And it's not always because I just have the easiest means to do it. It's, you know, it's something that I set a goal and I become determined and I work towards and oftentimes, you know, dealing with rejection on the way or people saying no, or you can't, or, you know, and just really kind of keeping that goal um, front and center. And so I think the book can be inspiring um, from that perspective, but um yeah, I've been very proud of myself in that way when I when I think, okay, here's this goal I'm going to set or this thing I'm going to do and then accomplish that. Well, I applaud you because a lot of times when things get rough, people kind of put the brakes on and go, gosh, again, maybe this is too difficult. I'm not going to do that. But you don't do that. No. <laughs> no, and sometimes that's driven my wife a little bit crazy. But no, yeah, I definitely... Um, just keep going. So. Yeah, keep moving forward. Well, mm-hmm. and I understand that Anna is a really good balance, you know, with, with the two of you working Milkweed in, you know, she brings so much balance to the table as well, which is, you know, that's what our partners do. Yeah, she, she's really good about that. And um, we're, we're, um, you know, we love everything about each other, but are also, um, very different, but in that good complementary way. And, um, at first when I would say, oh, Hey, I got this new idea. She'd say, oh yeah, good. What is it? You know? 
Um, but now she she's learned a little bit that I'm always having tons of ideas and, and you know, and she's able to say, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't exactly do this right now. And um, so she is good at like putting on the brakes with some of those things, um, which I definitely need. But also when, you know, it's some kind of goal that I put out there and, and we move towards um, and how it's good to have somebody that's, that's with me for that. And, uh, and she's a good supporter and yeah, a, a good balance. So what are some of the types of things that when people come to milkweed that they can expect as part of the experience there? So for milkweed, we, this next season, this year we were open for all of August because it was our first season. And so it was a little bit short, but next year we're open mid-May through mid-October. And um, it's just on the weekends, 10 people a weekend. We have um, a couple accommodations, uh, three rooms in our cabin, and then an Airstream, 16-foot Airstream. Um, so that has its own little bathroom and bed and, and kitchen area, and that's really cute. And then a wall tent, which are also called like Civil War tents because they have the high sides and then a peaked um, ceiling. And that um, has its own bed and stove, and it's on a wood platform. So um, it's got a nice, really nice coziness to it. So there's um, those accommodations. On Friday, people come, they check in. We have uh, a little bit more of a casual three-course dinner that evening. Um, And obviously, using everything that's very local and and, you know, foraged items in the fresh berries or, or whatever it may be. My neighbor's a fisherman, and so he's been bringing us Lake Superior Lake Trout, which has been really amazing. And we're completely off the grid, so I'm doing that over an open fire because I don't have an oven. And um, so it's just, it's very much a glamping setting. Everything's very beautiful, but um, at the same time, you know, there's, it's a well water and it's, you know, we use a generator and a battery for our electricity. Um, so that's that's Friday night. And then we have s'mores out by a open fire. And, um, you know, people have been stargazing because if it's clear out, the stars are just amazing up there because there's, you know, no city for miles and miles and miles. So there's none of the light pollution. And then on Saturday, we make a um, a big lunch. Um, there's plenty for people to do. Sometimes they go kayaking, swimming, or fishing in the river, which um, runs right through the back of our property. There's um, hiking, archery, bocce ball, croquet, um, just any uh, so so many things. We have a little four wheeler, so you know, people. It's kind of like a way for adults really to just get outside and play. Uh, a lot of people just hang out on the front porch and read and overlook um, the river and the trees because it's just so quiet. And, um, you know, you just hear the leaves the whole time and a little bit of the rushing water. And then um, uh, in the evening on Saturdays, we have a multi-course meal and Anna pairs the wines for that. And so um, uh, Sunday morning, we 
have a really nice breakfast and then um, everybody packs up and goes. So it's a little less than 48 hours and, um, you know, people are able to hang out with each other or, you know, find time alone. There's plenty of space to, um, you know, commingle or just kind of have a nice little bit of solitude and, um, and enjoy the beauty of the forest. I mean, it is at least 25 miles back from like a main road. So, um, you know, there's just tall trees and every, you know, wild animals. And so there is a level of safety that people have to be thinking of, but, um, it, I think it feels really fun and it, um, there's, we don't have good cellular service, so it really keeps people off their phones and, and they appreciate that. Oh, I know I do. That's fabulous. <laughs> it all sounds yeah. just amazing. And it's nice to be able to detach when you're in places like that. So you can really be present to the experience. Yeah, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ilana, we could, we haven't even touched the, the full of your book. I mean, there's so much that's in there, burn the place. Where can our listeners connect with you and be part of your community? Um, well, I, I would say that from a social media platform, we're mostly on, um, Instagram and very active and, you know, um, like to communicate back and forth with people on there. So there's Elizabeth restaurant underscore and underscore co or, um, milkweed in, um, and then also just, you know, through, um, either of our websites, elizabeth-restaurant.com or milkweedin.com. Um, both have um, contact forms, and um, I'm pretty much the one who reads those those things, anyways. And so, when people reach out, um, you know, personally for questions, or um, you know, have questions about the work or personal things, I'm, I'm kind of all over on those things. But I think that you know, people really get a sense of who we are through. Instagram and then also Twitter as well. Um, you know, we're active on those communities through social media. But then um, with Elizabeth and Milkweed, we're obviously doing things that are so much different than just a restaurant setting. At Elizabeth, we teach an eight-week cooking course that Anna and I do together. I teach the food, she teaches the wine. And that's really incredible because spending eight weeks every Sunday with with the 15 people that we do, um, we really get a chance to know them. And we've made some good friends through that, actually. And um, we go on foraging trips through Elizabeth. So there's a lot of things that we do aside from just being a restaurant that people get to um, interact with us and, you know, that some kind of benefit, like we're teaching them or something like that. And, you know, obviously milkweed is a, is a whole new level of experience too. So um, that's something that at least I really enjoy because I am a little bit more of a, a shy and introverted person, which I definitely go through in the book. But there's ways that I do like to connect people through with people through food and, you know, expressing uh, stories and, and, you know, showing them things about wild foods that they've maybe never had before. And, and so I think connecting with us at, at either, um, restaurant or inn is, um, a really 
fun experience for people to get a sense of who we are and what our community is like. Well, Ilana, we could talk for hours. I mean, I just love your book and I cannot wait to see your end. I think it sounds fabulous. You know, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Ilana. It's been such a joy to spend this time with you and, of course, to talk about your new book, Burn the Place. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Marianne airs every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.